sermon series is the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. Let me read to you God's word from Colossians. I'm reading from the ESV. Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Chapter 3, verse 18. I know, ladies, this is your life verse. Verse 18. (laughs) Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Guys, your favorite verse. Husband, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service, as as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Chapter 4, verse 4. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. The Apostle Paul is responding. Writing this letter to a community of believers in a city called Colossae. He's responding to information that he received from a man we know, his name is Epaphras. He's the church planter or possibly the the lead pastor who'd visited Paul while he was under arrest in Rome. Epaphras gave Paul a wonderful description of, of great things that are going on in the church. A church that Paul never visited, we learned that as well. But also some disturbing things that were being taught, that were being introduced into the congregation. False teaching, false doctrine about the person of Christ and the work of Christ. The teaching that they were saying that Jesus was not supreme. He is not sufficient to know God. They may have started well and they understood the gospel, the truth of the gospel, chapter 1. But now these false teachers were coming in saying, in order to have a deeper knowledge, a deeper faith, in order to experience the power of God, you need things like human philosophy and legalism, asceticism, false mysticism, all that was necessary to experience God's power, to get a deeper understanding of who God is and, and to understand and to know the salvation and redemption of Christ. So Paul's writing to say, no, I'm going to set the truth of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. In fact, there is nothing outside of the gospel. His name is Jesus that you need in order to know God, to experience God, to have a deeper relationship with God. In chapter 1, the Apostle Paul focused on the person of Christ and the work of Christ, really laying the foundation for his teaching. Verse 15 of chapter 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Verse 16, all things were created through Jesus and for him, and, and and, and in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 20 in chapter 1, and through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth, in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Then in chapter 2, he issues these warnings against the misunderstandings about Christ and how we can find our, our fullness in him, falsehoods that detract us from the completeness that one can have in Christ. Then in chapter 3, we saw Paul kind of turn the corner and begin to make practical life applications of the, of the principle and the rule of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. In fact, he says, we have died with Christ. We have been risen with Christ. 
Our sins were forgiven. They were nailed to the cross. And when Christ rose, we rose. We have this new identity, this, this new life. We're new creations. Focusing on a new heavenly world, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And because of that, our new identity, our new creation, Paul says in chapter 3, verses, verse 5, that we are to put to death certain things. We are to put to death sexual immorality and impurity. Chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, we're to put away certain things like, like anger, wrath, malice, and lying to one another. He says, knowing that, verse 10 of chapter 3, that we have this new self that's being renewed in the knowledge after its creator, the image of its creator. And Paul is saying, look, there's some, there's some things we need to know about Christ, right? We talked about that, the indicatives, the absolutes, the certainties of who Christ is, who we are as children of God, and then the imperatives, how we ought to grow and things we ought to do. Very important, indicatives before imperatives. And how, Now he says, Let, let's, let's talk about who Jesus is and who we are in him, and now let's talk about what it means to be Christ-like. What does it look like to be sanctified, to be set apart, to grow in Christ-likeness? Last week we said there are things that we ought to put on in our new self. Chapter 3, we are to put on as God's chosen holy one. Um, yeah, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 12. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, we are to have compassion in hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, verse 14. And above these, we are to put on love. It binds everything together. We find all these attributes that we are to put on, find their fulfillment, and we said, you know, get their lubrication through love. Binds it together. How we are to live in congregational life together in the local church. This week, the Apostle Paul will bring the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ, things we ought to put on and what that looks like in the home. In the home. Applying the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ to the family. This is a continuation of what it looks like to, to put off the old self, to put to death the things of the flesh, that part of us that wants to live in rebellion against God, and to put on the new self, the new the, the new creation, to put on Christ, because that's really an expression of Christ living his life. With, he, he is compassionate. He is kind. He has humility. He's, he's meek. What is it like to live Christ living in us? Things we have to put on. Now, so this is what it looks like to have a new creation living in home, in your home, your new identity lived out at home. Chapter 3, verse 18 through 4 tells us that. So he really he talks about three categories, very simple. Wives and husbands, parents and children, Slaves and masters. Very simple. He gets them right, right uh, dead on in those verses. So, first we look at wives and husbands. Wives, submit to your husband. Fitting to the Lord. Husband, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, let me just say right up front. It's going to get really quiet in here. Okay, that's all right. This may seem radical to some. And I'm here to tell you that when Paul wrote these letter, this letter and it was read in the Colossae church, it was just as radical to them in that day. It may be for different reasons, for a different culture, but it was just as radical. In both the Jewish and Roman culture, the man, the husband, had complete and total authority over his wife and over his children. And this whole section really is not promoting, as some would say, the cultural norms of that day. It's actually, it's actually going against the cultural norms of its day. And Paul tells the wives to submit. That's the middle present, uh, present, middle present imperative, speaking that it would come voluntarily from the heart. That they are to be subjective or submissive to their own husbands, not to their boss, 
Some people take this way too far. We're going to talk about that. Not to all men. Not to your neighborhood uh, male. Not to your, your workplace. This is your husband's. We're talking about a husband and wife in the home. It also does not mean that she takes on the role of slave. That she has to obey. That we'll see that with children next. That's not the word here. Okay, do whatever the husband tells you to do. That's not what it says. It also doesn't mean that they lose their identity as women. That's what the culture will tell you. They're actually fulfilling their roles as a wife. Now, the book of Ephesians was written around the same time, and I think it's important that we see the book of Ephesians as well. And I have it for you up on the screen next to one another. Wives, he says in, in, to the Ephesian church, same time he's writing Colossae, Wives, submit your husband as to the Lord, very important, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Notice the key in that verse in Ephesians. As to the Lord. Okay? As to the Lord. Wives, submit to your husband... As to the Lord. In other words, the husband does not replace Christ as the final authority over the women wives in the home. Her ultimate submission is Christ. And Paul is instructing the wives to render their submission in such a way, according to Ephesians, that the submission looks like the church, how the church submits to Christ. A, a respectful submission rendered voluntarily from the heart. This does not in any way, I need to say this, Diminish the dignity, personal worth, or value of her identity. She is not inferior. Christ himself was subordinate to the Father. This is not ontological. This is not nature, submission. 1 Corinthians 11, the head of every man is Christ. Head of the woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. There's submission within the, the trinity of God. Co-equal, co-eternal, yet subordination. As Christ responds in obedience to the Father. Right? And it's not culturally bound. We hear, oh, that's the culture that day. Well, no, actually 1 Corinthians 11, Genesis 1 and 2, 1 Timothy 2 says it's because of creation. Right? We don't want to say, oh, yeah, I guess uh, wives really don't need to do that now. We're in a different culture. Then I guess husbands don't need to love their wives because that's a different culture too. Right? We don't want to say that. Nobody would say that, I don't think, anyway. And because Christ is the ultimate authority... Wives are to have in this home that Paul is talking about for believers an attitude of submission that is fitting to the Lord. In other words, it's never something that one submits to that leads a person into sin. Every member of every, we'll see that with the sons, the fathers, everyone in the household understands that they live under the lordship of Christ who is Lord and King and reigns supremely over the house. So, Women are to act in such a way that it shows what it means to have Jesus as Lord. Men are to act the way in such a way that it looks like and, and, and reveals to the world that Jesus is Lord. In fact, if you look at our text this morning, the word Lord occurs six times. I think Paul's trying to say something. How, how Jesus is Lord, that's why it looks this way for the husbands, for the wives, for the, for the, for the children, for the masses, for the slaves. Jesus is Lord, and if he's, if he's Lord of your home and he's Lord of your life, then he's Lord of your family. See, that's the, way, that's the way it's supposed to work. The foundation 
of a home that is built according to, to the gospel and so according to uh, uh, God's design begins with a, a personal relationship with Jesus. The problem we face, and I know I'm opening up a can of worms. I want to try to close some of them. The problem we face um, comes when we equate roles with identity, roles with, with status, value, and worth. The gospel decimates that. No matter if you have billions of dollars or one dollar, whether you're the smartest person in the world or the least smartest person in the world, the gospel demolishes that we are totally equal in Christ. We see that all over the scripture. Dr. Mellick in the New American Commentary. Differences of roles to accomplish specific functions do not call for the categories of superior and inferior. It is better to speak suited for and not suited for, end quote. Our roles are irrelevant in the status and value and worth in the gospel. And I get it. I get it. Sometimes... In our broken culture, in our sinful culture, in our sinful world, I, it's no surprise that we use the word submission to demean people, to, to diminish value on people. That's wicked and that's sinful. There have been times when we have not done what's right, and men have not stood up against the demeaning and, and, and the, the, the diminishing of women, the value of women, the mistreatment of women. And in cases where there is persistence abuse, physical, sexual, or or psychological abuse, submission must stop. Make that clear. Submission is not blind obedience, ladies, men. When this commandment is tied to the second commandment for the husband, submission may make more sense. Look at the next verse. Husbands are to what? Love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Love, eros, sexual love, yes. Love, filial, friendship, yes. The word love here is agape, unconditional, sacrificial, loving our wives. Again, Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, verse 28. He who loves his wife loves himself, verse 29. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. In the culture, in the day, what men would discuss and everyone would agree upon when the guys got together was the rights they had over their family, not love. And Paul turns it on its head. And said, no, 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 it's not about your rights. It's about you loving your family, loving your wife, treating her kindly and not harshly. And the husband is called to do whatever is necessary to promote her her personal well-being and satisfaction. The model is Christ's love for the church. That's what Ephesians tells us. In a Christian marriage, the husband knows that the gospel In the gospel, he is eternally loved, unconditionally loved, and now he's commanded by God to show that same love to his wife. Think of it this way. A wife's submission, in verse 18, is submitting to a husband who is what? Loving her as Christ loved the church. Right? It's not overbearing. He's not 
a tyrant, intimidating behavior. He is what? Loving and what? Not harsh with them. Speaks of our demeanor. Guys, we can be harsh. I could be harsh. What kind of response, right? Are we embittered toward our wives? Are, are, are we embittered? Are, are, we, are we pushing them toward disobeying the Lord? Do you want to know if you're, you're truly loving your wife? Ask yourself, is your heart embittered to her? Does your bitterness flow into your language? See, love, Christ's love, agape love, uh, forbids demeaning leadership that takes advantage of a wife's willingness to submit to her husband. Instead, a husband's submission to Christ's lordship is a willing recognition that Jesus is Lord over the home, Jesus is Lord over my family, and Jesus has adopted my wife as his daughter. A husband must first recognize, listen guys, that we are first under authority before we can be in authority. We're under authority. And the authority we are under is not in inherent authority. It is, it, is, it is authority that has been divinely given to us and described to us by God. But we are under his authority first. Therefore, in reverence to Christ, a husband sacrificially loves his wife, honors her, cares for her, provides for her, has compassion and understanding toward her, esteeming her worthy in the eyes of God. Speaking to myself, guys. You know, when the Bible talks about headship, I've done a lot of weddings since I've been here, 16 years. Done a lot of, it does not mean, we're ahead of the home, it does not mean we are greater in any way, in essence, value, or worth. Headship is a partnership of two spiritual people that recognize divine calling of the husbands who take primary what? Headship is what? Guys? Thank you. Primary responsibility. We don't shrug responsibility. We take responsibility of our homes. He's a servant leader, loving, protecting, and providing for his wife. John MacArthur it's that deep affection that sees your wife as a sister in the Lord, that sees your wife as a weaker vessel to be cared for. Now remember, when the Bible talks about a weaker vessel, it doesn't mean weaker in, um, uh, in, in a sense of strength. It's talking about weaker in a sense of a precious vase, a vase, however you call it. That weaker, fragile, loving, caring, protecting, watching. That sees your wife as a weaker vessel to be cared for. That sees your wife as your best friend. That sees your wife as the most important human being in the world. That sees your wife as the most critical, permanent investment and lifelong partner, end quote. I was reading this week something uh, on marriage, and it said that the, like, the number one thing that keeps marriages together is that they're best friends, spending time together. Right? So this is lived out, guys, not, not, a, not as a... a not as an ultimatum to be served, but, but to served. Not as a dictator, but strength to sacrificially serve your wife. Headship means responsibility. It's our duty to see that their emotional physical needs of our wife are provided, cared for, loved. The submission of the wife is the divine calling of a wife to honor her husband, to recognize his leadership, to carry it through with her giftedness. It begins not with actions only, ladies. It's an attitude. It's a disposition. To yield to the husband's authority and an inclination to, to follow his leadership. 
Notice it does, he doesn't use the word obey like he will in the next verse. It, it, it's, it's, it's not obedience in that sense. It is not this authoritative, overbearing, browbeating relationship. It's willingness from the heart. He used the word obey when you get to the children. And the bottom line is a relationship between a husband and wife is really, not to be simple, but the relationship between a husband and wife really is about the gospel. It's really about Jesus and your relationship with Jesus. We find that in Ephesians chapter uh, 5, that it's to reflect the gospel. How the husband loves the wife as the wife willingly submits to his leadership. It shows the world the mystical union of Jesus. When the husband treats his wife with disdain, when we are mistreating our wives and treating them harshly, and we only care about what's going on in my world, what are we saying to the world about Christ and the gospel? That he don't love his church. He don't care about his church. He don't care for her struggles, her weaknesses, her needs. He only cares about himself. That's not true. But when the husband seeks the spiritual, emotional, and physical welfare as a wife, he leads her and loves her and cares for her and sacrificially gives for her. He proclaims the, to the world the gospel of Jesus, who does all those things for his bride. And when a wife submits only out of convenience or self-serving reasons, what is she declaring? That that's how the church is supposed to submit to Christ. And, and many times, and I have to say this as, as we, we move on, and I, you know, we can all, we can all be, we can all do this. Um, I think sometimes we are, we, we are guilty of determining our, our personal obedience to this, our, our fulfilling of the roles that we have based on what the other person does, right? Our, it doesn't say that in the text. In other words, if a wife's unwillingness and her, her, her unwilling heart and she does not have an attitude of, of the submission according to Scripture, then we doesn't mean we get a license to treat them harshly and not to love them. Sorry, that's not in the Bible. We're still commanded to love our wives. Sometimes, guys, we may, we may not lead as well as we ought to. And maybe that may look differently in different homes, but that doesn't give ladies a right to just disrespect and dishonor their husbands. We're all accountable. We're all accountable to the Lord, and, and, we're, and we are to fulfill our role's responsibility accordingly. Now, of course, again, as I said before, it does not mean in any way that someone should subject themselves to abuse, immoral, ad, um, immorality, or Ill, something illegal to fulfill their responsibility. A wife's not called to submit and put her children in danger. That's not what we're talking about. I mean, hear me clearly. But apart from extremes, our faithfulness must not depend on the members of our partner, of our wife, of our husband. We're commanded in Scripture. How much easier, let me say this and we'll move on. How much easier it would be to follow these instructions when both Husband and wife are, are expressing and working. No one does it right. Perfect. But, but are working toward obeying these commands on a somewhat regular, consistent basis. How much easier is it for a wife who knows that her husband loves her to submit to him, knowing that what he's doing and how he's acting and, and how he's living is, 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 is for the glory of God and the care and welfare of his wife. How much easier for a husband to love his wife and care for her when, when he knows that she's loyal and honors him and respects him. See how that works? When we are in our 
new identity. We're walking in the gospel. When the fullness of Christ, the supremacy, the sufficiency of Christ has filled our heart, we can step up in the fullness of Christ and live in our home. As Christ is Lord, leading, loving, submitting and following, and walking together in the ways and the will of God. If, if you have, we'll go to part two. If, if, if this has opened up a can of worms for you and you have questions or concerns, uh, you can get my number, email the church, meet one of the elders, meet myself. We could definitely, we could talk. It's an open book. I love the word of God. That's why I do expository preaching. I don't know how many guys want to wake up and do this verse. Um, but we do that here and we hold to the scripture. So please feel free to call and we'll get together and talk through it. Parents and children is next, verse 20. That was the longest point. All right, all you parents out there, love verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleased the Lord. And you're thinking, that's so simple. Right? I mean, it's almost as simple as love your wife and submit your husband. But it's really simple. Obey your parents in everything. It has to do with your relationship with Christ. Again, for this pleased the Lord. If you want to go back and get your kids, go get them now. <laughs> Children ought to act in such a way that they understand the sovereignty and the sphere of Christ's presence in the house. The word obey is different than the word submit. It's much stronger here with children. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2, Paul states that when children obey the Lord, they are what? They're, they're following the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments. And he adds, which is in the Ten Commandments, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. This reception of the promise of God that God gave to Moses for God's people. There's a promise. Things will go well. Now the word children here in, in the original language can, can be of different age, age brackets. Um, but I think it's obvious from the text that children here are, are the ones that in relationship with the parents are still under their care and in their home, right? So you stop being one of these children that have to obey the parents when, when, you, when you leave the house. Okay, I know you want to go home right now and pack their stuff, but I'm, what I'm saying is, as long as you're in the home, if you're here, you're living in the home, then yes, your parents are responsible for you. As long as they're un, you're under their leadership, their control, it applies to you, right? And, and unfortunately, I think what we're seeing in our culture is this, this destructive uh, removal of parent, parental authority. Um, I, I have to say, it's, I, I think... A lot of time we talk about parents and their authority over their children. It's like a dirty word. And children don't need to pay any attention to what their parents are telling them or what, what the parents are instructing them. Well, that's a, that's a clear, a very clear contradiction to Scripture. The way the home is designed to run, both Old and New Testament, according to both Scripture and experience, I don't mean to burst your bubble, you're a cute little one, um, but we are born into sin and we have a sinful nature. It's not just, oh, they're immature. No, no, they're, 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 they're when, when you're not looking, they're taking what they're not supposed to take, and they're eating what they're not supposed to eat. It's not like, oh, they just, that, that's innate. They need a lot of love. They need a lot of discipline. Karl Barth is a famous uh, German theologian, and he had a friend, Karl Zuckman, a Zuckmayer, and Zuckmayer was in America, and he writes this letter, and I think it's kind of funny. He says, if one has lived in America, Zuckmayer writing to this theologian, if one has lived in America and seen in countless cases what injustice is done to children, one has enough of it, and then I'm done with it. 
One sees too much that someone hidden behind misunderstood psychoanalytical maxims, in other words, uh, some psychobabble as their principles, allows them, the children, to become little tyrants and ill-humored despots, rulers, whom, whom adults crawl in front of for pure convenience, only to get peace. And one sees how this takes effect in the unfortunate adolescence when they, brought up without authority, are confronted with the difficulties of life, end quote. 16, 17, no respect for the parents, no honoring their construction, instruction. Once they're up in that age, that preteen, teen, it's really hard. Some of us have been there. I don't mean to, to, to poke you in the eye. I'm just saying you know. It's tough. We need help. And if you need help, again, give us a call. We'll help you in any way we can. Okay? But one thing we don't want to do is just throw it all away. The book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 7, says this. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son or daughter is there whom God the Father doesn't discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons and daughters. So it's evident that God loves you and loves me because he disciplines us in love. That's what he's saying. The absence of discipline means there's no love. And the same thing with parents. The absence of discipline means parenting is not being practiced. And weakness, consistent discipline, really, family, is a lack of love. You need love and discipline to have the fullness and completeness that Paul is talking about. And, and I, I, would, I would, you know, I think we all would agree that Paul doesn't mean that children ought to obey their parents in everything meaning sin and illegal activities, right? I mean, we already know that. But it's interesting, in Romans chapter 1, Paul lists this, this whole list of, of, of sins, and in the middle of these really harsh, you know, sinful behaviors is disobedience to parents. We're seeing that today. Ligon Duncan, education is rooted in deference, I mean, humble respect to authority. If we do not defer to authority, especially the authority of our parents in the home and the authority to those people in the world God has placed over us, we ultimately rob ourselves of the ability to grow. Why? Because God has made the world in such a way that the only way we grow is proper deference to authority, end quote. So Paul's saying, listen, parents, love your children, teach them, discipline them. Yes, children to obey their parents as fitting as the, in the Lord, but look what he says. He goes further. He says, fathers, you're commanded not to provoke your children. Not only will it not go bad, but you're going you're gonna to break them down. You're going to hurt their hearts. You're going to discourage them. And now, I don't know what translation you have, verse 21, but fathers can be translated parents or those who have authority over their children. But I, don't think, I think Paul is shifting on purpose because fathers have the primary responsibility over their homes. And therefore, they have the primary responsibility to see that the discipline and love in their home is being done correctly. We can't, guys, we can't just say that's her job. Right? He so said, don't, don't, don't embitter them. 
Don't provoke them, which means make them resentful, uh, to, to, to cause someone to be bitter. In, in, the, Greek, in the, the Greek word here, specific sense is to, to irritate the child by, by nagging them or mocking them, putting them down, making them bitter and angry and resentful toward you. In other words, don't antagonize them. Don't overly discipline them. Ephesians 6, 4 again, fathers do not provoke your child to anger. They're going to get angry sometimes, but we're not provoking them. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This will stop them from being discouraged. This will help them be motivated to do what the scripture says. Do which is pleasing to the Lord. So guys, dads, are we provoking our kids? Picking on them. Constantly picking on them. Lacking encouragement to them. Never being satisfied with their, with their, with their efforts. <laughs> Don't raise your hand. You ever see those guys at the baseball field, man? The soccer fields? Man, my daughter was playing softball back a few years back. And I, I tell you, it took all of the Holy Spirit's power not to me to punch him in the face, man. I was, I'm like, will you leave her alone? It's public, man. Man, he was on top of her, belittling her. It was embarrassing. Terrible, man. Yeah, they need correction. They don't need belittling. There are times when discipline will actually, they'll feel the pain, and they're not going to like it. But there's a difference between disciplining a child and belittling a child, right? There's a difference between correcting a child and mocking them as a person who's created in the Imago Dei, the image and likeness of God. If correction is needed, it should be toward the child's behavior, not the child's personhood. So whether you believe in corporal punishment or not, or time out, or however means you discipline your child, ask the question, is it working? Is it working? Is it correcting their behavior and not attacking their person? Is it taking forever? I think sometimes if we try our discipline practices, but it takes three days, you know, over and over and over and over, and it's an hour and a half later, I think we may have to say, all right, this isn't really working. Because at that point, they're, they're discouraged. And at that point, they're like, nothing I can do. Lots of books out there, right? I'm no expert. I'm speaking from times of failure myself and from experience. But guys, we need to try to make our homes, and moms and dads, as an atmosphere that makes obedience easy and, and a regular matter, an environment of love, confidence, respect, and honor. Correction is necessary as children need to learn right and wrong. It teaches them the consequences for their actions. Dads need to spend time with their kids, teaching them, having fun with them, encouraging them, and of course, living out an example to them and pointing them both by their example and by speech to Christ. Can't try to figure it out on their own. They need love, they need discipline, they need encouragement, not irritable harshness, being over strict, but being consistent in love and discipline, committed to the gospel, committed to Jesus, committed to pointing them toward the truth of the gospel. Now finally, slaves and masters, verse 22. Bond servants, slaves, obeying everything those who are earthly, matter, uh, earthly masters, not by way of eye service, people pleasing, sincerity and fear of the Lord. Whatever you do heartily, do it heartily. Work hard for the Lord, not for man. Okay? The command, like the command to children, is to obey. And I need to, I, I need to say this, we're not going to get too deep into this, but First century slavery and the slavery here in America are two different things, although they both were owning of people. 
Okay, I mean, that doesn't say. In, in the world of, of Rome, in the world of Paul, uh, I read somewhere that a third of all Rome inhabitants were slaves. Prisoners of war, uh, through debt, kidnapped, criminal. Uh, they were criminals. They were purchased. They were, they were brought into slavery by their parents who were in slavery. Um, slavery was much, much more political and economic, not ethnic in those days. Okay, I'm, not, I'm just telling you the facts. I'm not condoning it, of course. Everyone that day knew in the sound, the city in which they lived, that if they were conquered, they were bringing and brought into slavery. Paul's not acquiescing to just the cultural norms and, and promoting it. That's not what he's doing. He's trying to say that in this situation, in your home, in the church, you have masters and you have slaves. And now Paul is speaking about his, the real relationship to Jesus in the midst of this cultural thing that was going on in that day. Paul is saying, listen, you have new life, you're a new creation, and it's, it is to impact your husband and wife, children, and your home with slaves and masters. And he's approaching it really from a God-centered perspective. Because anything that's, anything that's going to change within the home is God has changed within the heart, right? He's not promoting or advocating slavery. Actually, he says, it's profoundly important, rather progressive for his day. Dr. Melek wrote something, uh, I have a quote of his, I think it's pretty good. He says, Christians could do little by force, <clears throat> little by force. On the, other, on the other hand, the teaching of the apostle here and elsewhere clearly sowed the seed for the emancipation of slaves and the end of the institution. Paul did what he could in the best way possible, end quote. The mere fact that Paul is writing to the bond servants, the slaves, as Genuine people who have relationships with the Lord, with him, with their masters, points to their worth. Because in those days, in that culture, slaves had no worth at all. They, they were just machines to do what you told them to do. And now Paul is talking to them as people valued, loved of God. He's already said in chapter 3, verse 11, there's no Greek, Jew, circumcision or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. The gospel and the gospel alone redefines cultural relationships within our culture, uh, within our homes. We are one in Christ. We are union with him. Remember, remember Philemon, Philemon was in Rome. Excuse me, Philemon, uh, the slave owner who's in Colossae, Philemon's in Colossae. Onesimus, who was in Rome, who got saved, was a runaway slave. And now Paul is writing this letter, and they're both at the congregation. Slave and master. And Paul is saying, you're one in Christ. Just imagine that for a minute. And the fact that he, he addresses slaves and masters with equality is, is huge. Again, obedience and everything. I don't think he means sitting against the Lord. But it must not be, look what he says, not just external and begrudging duty, not in eye service as men pleases, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. In other words, he says, don't just do things to, 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 to gain brownie points or just to do things if someone's watching or, or maybe don't do nothing when no one's around. No, you are to serve in such a way that it is sincerity of heart. It's fearing the Lord. We learned a lot from Isaiah. Fearing the Lord is different than fearing man. So, the unbelieving slaves were fearful of what was going to happen to them because of their master. The faithful one is fearing what? Reverence and respect and honor that they are serving the Lord. Ultimately, all of us serve the Lord in all that we do. That's what he's saying here. Just don't go through the motions. Be sincere. Fear God. Working hard. Bringing glory to God. Verse 24. 
Very interesting verse. You can underline it. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. Slaves were what? Owned. What did they own? Nothing. What is God telling them? What is Paul telling them? What is the gospel telling them? That their inheritance, their, their final consummation, their new heavens, their new earth, their new body are co-heirs with Christ. Equal part of God's household. The promise of an inheritance for slaves lifts and transforms their status to legitimate heirs of the house of God. Amazing. Paul is transforming the cultural norms of his day. Verse 25, the wrongdoer will be paid back for wrong he has done. There is no partiality. What he's saying is God will take care of it and will have justice. Now, a lot of people think that that verse, he's talking to slaves and masters, and he probably is, probably a transitional verse saying, look slaves, look masters, you're, you're being watched, you're being seen. God is watching what's happening to you. He's not talking about losing salvation, but there, there's discipline coming for the slaves who will not serve well as unto the Lord, and masses who treat their slaves disrespectfully and without honor. As we see in chapter 4, verse 1, the last, the last verse. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Treat them as you would want to be treated yourself. You're in the community. You're part of the gospel. You're, you're in the gospel. You're part of the community of God. And okay, masters, you may, have, you may do what you do according to the law of Rome, but you can't do it according to the law of God. Treat them not as the law would say, but treat them as what the gospel says. That's what he's saying. And many people take these words and use it for the employer-employee relationship. You know, in other words, work hard, serve the Lord, you go to work, you know, don't cheat your boss, don't lie to your boss, don't, don't sleep on the boss, don't steal stuff from your boss. You know, serve wholeheartedly, fearing God. That's great. And master, you, maybe you have some people working for you. You're to love them, you're to care for them. You should treat them as you would want to be treated, even though you're over them or you're, you're, you're their superior. I get all that. And that's true according to this text. But I don't want you to lose the radical, transforming word of God. Because the last time I looked, and nobody in this room who goes to work thinks they're owned by their employer. That, the radical transformation, how much more we who go to work should work heartily, fearing the Lord, showing forth the glory of the gospel, the beauty of Jesus, and how he is sufficient and all satisfying to us when we go to work, right? Now let me end this way. All this is because we have new birth, new life, new creation, putting off the old things, sexual immorality, putting off hatred and malice, putting on Christ, putting on compassion, love, and forgiving, because we're doing all those things. That's what it looks like to live it out. But let me tell you something was clear in this passage as well. In chapter 1, Epaphras, the church planner, is called a fellow slave, doulos. In chapter 4, verse 12, Paul calls Epaphras the slave of Christ. Family, the reality is we are all slaves, spiritually speaking. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 34, Truly or truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Romans chapter 6, when we were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. You couldn't do it. 
Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or slaves to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But now that you have been set free from sin, you become a slave of God. Two possibilities. A slave to sin, a master is rebellion, our end is death, and eternal separation from God, or a slave of Christ, rooted in the fundamental redemptive act of Jesus, who delivers his people from, from the bondage of sin. We can't save ourselves, we can't justify ourselves, our hearts are bent on either being in sin or in Christ. We are either in sin or in Christ. Christ has set us free. Now, if you're here thinking, uh, I'm not either one of those. Those two options doesn't fit me. It does. And you'll know at the end of time that you've been a slave to sin because in the end, it's destruction. But we're here this morning and calling you to, to be slaves of Christ who died for you, who rose for you, who sets you free. He, he said, John chapter 8, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You see, Christ sets us free from the damnation of sin by becoming a curse for us. That Christ, Galatians says, redeemed us by, by, uh, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He frees us from the damnation of sin. The Bible says, for the wage of sin is death. But he also frees us from the do domination. Damnation and domination of sin. By changing us. We've been talking about that through the new birth. He liberates our, 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 our sinfulness and, and, and our fallen humanity and, and he gives us his spirit. And now he puts his spirit within us to do what he wants us to do. We, we respond in the new nature. We are now can put to death the deeds of the flesh. We can now put on the things of Christ. He sets us free from sin, from guilt, from damnation because he died in our place. He rose from the dead. He died as an atonement for our sin. He took our guilt with him when he went to the cross. And then he offers us life. He gives his life for us. And the new birth, this new creation, he gives us hearts, a new heart to see the beauty of Christ, to respond to the Savior, to see Jesus as the most important, the most desired, the most satisfying person in the universe. It is through the cross, through the cross alone. So as the band comes up, let me, let me ask you this. Where has the Lord spoken to you? What has the Holy Spirit shown you today? And how will you respond? How will you respond? How will you repent? How will you believe? How will you trust? How will you be transformed into the greater image of Christ? It is through the cross. It is through the resurrection. That Jesus broke Satan's dominion. Hebrews tells us that Jesus... Through his death, destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered us, all of us, through fear of death when we were subject to lifelong slavery. It is Christ. Will you respond today? Eternal freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from death, through the cross, the empty tomb. Let us pray. Father, we are humbled before you and recognize that your grace is sufficient for us. That although the truth of your word may seem heavy 
we pray that your spirit will make it light. We pray, Father God, that by the spirit we will put the deeds of the flesh to death. And that by the spirit we will live and put on Christ. And that, Lord, perfection is not part of life in this world. But, Lord, we will strive to walk in humble gratitude and thanksgiving. Living our lives as husband and wife, children and parents, employer-employees in a way that which honors and glorifies you and you alone. Father, we're thankful that it is the gospel that transforms us, that you love us, and that Christ's moral record has been imputed to us by faith, that we could live not to get love from you, but because you love us and sent your Son as atonement for us, Lord. So help us together as a church to glorify you in all that we do and all that we say. And may we as your children proclaim the gospel with our actions, our attitudes, and our lives to open the door that we may proclaim it with words of life eternal whose name is Jesus, we pray. Amen.